they kind of work in in their field and how how it is that they see what they do and the passion it, it's really comes down for me it comes down to to passion like that people will wake up in the morning and they are excited to go to work and they put their heart and soul into their calling whether it is you know putting a your your paintbrush to a to paper or taking a photograph or going to work and fixing bikes for a living you know if that lights you up and that's what you're passionate about then i feel that it is the same as the way that we live as artists like it's that the calling the 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 process of actually following what lights you up and your your passion and that is like so powerful and it is in in so many other things apart from you know what we as you said classify as being artistic or creative Gilda and welcome to Paper Fox Radio a collection of intimate stories of personal growth how we navigate our way through change and who we become along the way my name is Az Roberts We record this episode on Gadigal Country. I pay my respects and acknowledge the traditional custodians, past and present, of land, seas and skies. Today's guest is Renata Reen-Muller, a photo media artist based in Sydney. Renata works primarily in traditional printing processes, including 19th century wet plate. Renata is a co-founder of the non-for-profit creative space La Creme Creative in Brookvale. It's an absolute gem of a space. They have um, a bunch of resident artists, like sculptors, painters, photographers, illustrators, uh, video filmmakers, all that jazz, all in one creative space. Absolute perfect little workspace. Uh, she's also the co-founder of BAD, the Brookvale Arts District. Now they're creating a thriving community, connecting local and international artists, artisans, creatives and heart-led creators of all walks of life. She's currently working on her next solo exhibition. It's a portrait series that's due for launch in mid-September 2022 and there'll be a book that goes with it. I met Renata a couple of weeks back up at La Creme Creative Studio. I was fortunate enough to get a tour of her darkroom. She showed me a bunch of her handmade cameras, a lot of this darkroom technology that I've never ever seen in first hand before and including this 160-year-old behemoth camera that she uses to take portraits with. I was absolutely fascinated there on the spot by Renata's choice and uh, process, why she chose one of the most technical, labour-intensive photography processes to specialise in. And as a character, I was like, you must come on the podcast. So I asked her, she rocked up, and... Yeah, the rest is history. In the conversation, it was really such a, a pleasure to talk to another creative who is going through some of the same struggles of showing your work. What makes a creative? What makes an artist? You know, where do you draw that line? What it means to be a heart-led creative or artist. We also talk about her history, how she came to be such a resourceful, creative individual, and there's some there's some brilliant stories there as well. Her influences like from her father impacted the way that she actually does photography and how she thinks and works as a creative. 
I don't say this often, but this was to date one of my favorite conversations on the podcast, the way it originated, uh, the energy that Renata brought to the conversation and the way we bounced off each other. You'll hear there's a lot of synergies there and um, it was just an absolute, absolute pleasure to talk to another creative and just be on the same wavelength. I love this conversation. I hope you do too. Please enjoy my conversation with Renata. So this is um, this is actually a first, Renata. I've had guests before bring a small folder of notes to share. Uh, people get excited when they. Um, I think people get excited. I shouldn't say that. Maybe people get excited when they <laughs> have to share their story and things. And when you said today that you're going to bring some coffee, I was like, yeah, takeaway coffee would be good. Um, but you've brought a full plunger and a whole bag of beans. Where from? Berkeley. Berkeley. Local, local bakery. Good. Good one. Are they, are they part of the bad crew? Absolutely, they yeah, are. Yeah, yeah, good. From the beginning. And uh, Fuel Cafe, Brownie, all local. <laughs> <laughs> Representing here. <laughs> this is our first sponsored podcast, by the way. Cool, so making money. Sponsored? What well, is now. Oh, like, great. <laughs> <laughs> right, they've just signed up without knowing. Yeah, yeah. They'd be happy good, about it. Good, good, good. Hey, thank you so much for coming along. Thanks for inviting me. What an honour. So for everybody listening, this one, um, they're, all, they're pretty much all different, all the podcasts that I do. Um, but this one's different again because I was actually out looking for a co-working space on Tuesday this week and uh, just sort of following my nose because we've just moved to the Brookvale area and um, I was really looking for a co-working space, something that would, something that would, really connect the heart and soul a bit more than just a, um, a desk and, um, yeah, a row of desks. And uh, so, so I've had a good look around the area and I heard that there was this place called La Creme and I was like, well, that sounds good. So I shot La Creme email, but I didn't hear anything back and I was in the area anyway. So I thought, well, I'll go knock on the door because, you know, maybe someone's there and just let myself in like a creep on the, off the street. <laughs> Is that how it happened? Yeah. I didn't realise. I thought you had made an appointment with Miguel. No. Oh, no, no. I'm awesome. not, I'm not that, that patient. I'm not that patient. <laughs> and so I just walked in and met Miguel and um, kind of we had a good chat and he said, you know, we don't have a lot of space here and stuff and you might be moving. And um, he was telling me about this dark room downstairs. I'm like, fire out. People still use dark rooms. And then... Out of the dark room came this woman. <laughs> that was me. <laughs> and um, yeah, then Ren. <laughs> <laughs> that was me. Yeah, and uh, I just overheard you and Miguel talking, and you know, looking for a space. And I was like, "Oh my god, we're going to have to break it to another person. We're actually about to move, and this space is no longer going to be here." But it was it was so cool to just. To meet another creative, I mean, that's that's the whole thing with La Creme is we just attract 
incredible creative people that then become part of the family, whether they are in-house residents, Amigos, which is like our kind of extended family, our Amigos program where, you know, people who are working from home but don't have a creative community can join up and then, you know, come to our regular events or market stores or um, workshops or whatever it is. So, yeah, it was it was awesome to just meet another creative and then you started talking about what you were doing and then I was like, I reckon, I reckon he wants to come and see the dark room. So I said, do you want to come and have a look at the dark room? And you were like, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so come on in. <laughs> Let's have a chat. Yeah, so, um, yeah, I don't know where we start, but I guess the, the best place to start is like, why do you drink black coffee? Oh, wow, that's such a good first question. <laughs> um, because I'm German. <laughs> Hence the last name, yep. Lange Schwarze. That's my coffee order there long, and here. Long black. A long black, yeah. I don't know. I just feel like it keeps me going. It's like usually just, you know, it's just straight to the point. You can taste the flavour. I feel like milk, as much as I like a milky coffee and a croissant on a Saturday morning, today's different. I have a long black drinker friend now who I said I have to go and I have to actually go and get some beans and make him a long black rather than bring a takeaway. <laughs> You've gone above and beyond. It's like, a very industrial um, coffee plunger as well, isn't it? Yeah. Where did you get it from? I actually got it from Ace. Is that weird? I got it from a secondhand market. But no. No, but those things just like last and last and last. Well, that's the, I got, um, we, had, we had a glass one that broke. It just didn't take the punishment of, you know, me at six o'clock in the morning plunging that thing as hard as I could and it just exploded. This thing will last forever, I reckon. Yeah. yeah. It's a bit like a LPG gas tank where you have to pick it up to understand how much coffee's left in there and <laughs> sort of make an approximation. Yeah, and you don't want to leave it too long because there's, you know, stuff that grows in there once you leave it for a few weeks, maybe even a month or so. Yeah. When you get back from a holiday, there's like whole ecosystem growing you, inside yeah you were asking me just before in the kitchen about what sort of coffee you know i drink and where have i explored in terms of coffee around here and man i've got this filthy habit of taking like half coffees home pouring it into our communal sort of coffee jar that gets topped up with plunger coffee and it's just like this approximation of coffee but it does the job i don't know if i can make a comment on that because you don't too right no oh <laughs> I'm a bit outraged to be honest. Really? You just fill up your the rest of your coffee into the other coffee yeah, and then you keep drinking it. No. It's just be fresh. um I don't know. Each to their own. I mean Maybe maybe it's where I have to sort of acknowledge I might have some sort of problem, right? <laughs> <laughs> however you you know, however you get that caffeine intake, it's like it's a very personal thing, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like I'm an absolute coffee addict now. I actually only drink one coffee a day. Right. Yeah. But it's a litre. You hit, you hit yeah, a litre. It's just one. It's a, it's a mega pint of coffee, as Johnny true. Depp would have. But it's still one, you know, makes yeah. you feel like you're drinking less. But really. So uh, you've got an exhibition in September. I do. You want to tell us a bit about that? Oh, first time talking about it and on a podcast. Wow. Okay, let's just go for it. Hey? Yes, this exhibition... The title, which um, I've had for a little while, but I haven't actually said it out loud, but it's called The Artist Lens. 
Yes. You're throwing your head back in surprise? Well, that's going to be one of my questions oh, later. Okay, okay. Because well, you, you were go. talking about take, it the other day yeah. and I was like, must ask him more about that. Yes. Yep. So the artist lens, basically, it's a body of work that I've been working on for the last six years. It's a specifically a portrait series um, featuring mostly creatives that I've met along my journey of coming over to the Northern Beaches and, um, yeah, meeting a whole bunch of creative people and being really intrigued about their process, how they live in the world as artists and really being able to capture their soul through a photograph, through a single portrait that tells us what it is that they are doing in this world how they live and breathe their art, their purpose, their soul, and the story, the story that comes with it. So that's kind of in a nutshell what the show is about. Are you are you printing like um, any story or any narrative with it or is it just going to be the photograph? Yeah, it will be a short story about the artist. I haven't specifically narrowed it down yet so I'm still kind of working you know I've got this the story of how I came across that person because that's Mm. kind of also along my journey of kind of coming across this person and then you know having access to my dark room where I can shoot you know wet plate you know 19th century photography or I come across someone I've got my film camera and I just said hey you know I'm doing this can I can I photograph you in film and yeah sure and then but it is it's all analog None yeah. of that's digital. It's um it reminds me like it's really it's cool to hear you talk about it like that because it kind of reminds me how I find people to come on the show. Exactly. As um very similar. Yeah. Which is yeah, I guess why this one is particularly different because I just felt like we needed the conversation that we had in the dark room, we needed to keep that conversation going or I'd love to keep that conversation going, you know, with another artist, someone that I was connecting with. And I was like, usually I put a lot more thought into who am I going to get on the show? And it's very sometimes mechanical orchestrated to a degree, but it just was like, fuck it. Let's, let's get this done. Let's do it this weekend. Yeah. And so awesome. Yeah. That was so productive. Like, Within 24 hours, we had booked in. <laughs> yeah. And honestly, I haven't done much prep. I've done a bit of prep, but not much prep. It's fine. See where it takes us. You mentioned in our conversation that it's been six years in the making, mm-hmm. this, this exhibition. Why six years? Oh, that's, a, that's a long <laughs> answer right here. <laughs> no, I think it's an important one to start with, actually, because... And, and one of the things that is, you know, really prominent in the book and, and the story that I'm telling through this series is every creative, every artist goes through the process of having that first urge to express oneself through a creative, you know, um, what's the word, medium, whether it's photography, whether it's painting, whatever it is. And I think in that moment of discovering that, we go, okay, like, we love this. 
I, that's kind of a, a soul calling. I'm meant to do this. And then, you know, you go, okay, how can I do this and support myself through doing this? How can I potentially make this a career? And for me, that process of, you know, going to art school, you know, I knew that I wanted to do something in the arts. I went to art school for, you know, I did my undergrad for three years and I did my postgrad for a year, went overseas, came back. I, I knew that I wanted to pursue art, but I had such a, I guess, a difficult time in believing that I could actually make this a career. I mean, not that that's always important to to make it 100% your career. We always have, you know, the side hustle that kind of pays for what, what it is that we're doing in, in our creative pursuits. But because this particular one as well was not a, a cheap endeavour and it was, it cost me a lot to set up the dark room and work in this 19th century process that, mm. you know, involved a lot of um, money going into the chemistry that I was buying and the sourcing and the equipment and everything. So it just, all I wanted to do was just make the work and I didn't really kind of think about when or where or why I was doing this. I just, I knew that I had to do it. So it was just making and making and making and making and making and going out and shooting and making. And so everyone that sat for my portrait was just like, okay, cool. So um, when am I going to be seeing it? When, you know, can I buy it? No, because it's going to be in the exhibition. And then it just dragged on and on and on and on. And I had, you know, after two years of being in one space, the we had to leave that space. So I had just built that dark room, had to back it all down, Ooh. found a new space that wasn't going to fit the dark room, waited there, like, you know, sat on a desk and a computer kind of twiddling my thumbs for a little while until we found an actual space that allowed me to build the the dark room in that space more permanently. And then, you know, cycles happening again where I'm going to have to pack it down. But that's... Um, so that was Lacrine. I feel like I've gone about. on a little bit of a tangent. I'm sorry. I know. No, it's <laughs> like... Um, so we're talking about why did... I guess, why did it take six years? Yeah. So really for me, I was waiting for the confidence, really. Honestly, it was about me getting to that point where I felt, okay, I'm ready to show this work now. The answer is, though, we're never really ready. It's just you just got to pick a date, commit to it, and then show the work. So that's kind of where I'm at now. I'm like, cool, I turned 33 in September. I'm going to have it the day after my birthday. <laughs> That's that. So that's kind of what I'm working towards now. And once that date had come out there, I just, yeah, I just, I knew that I, that was it. I just had to commit to that. It's often pretty good just to bite the bullet and put a, a date in the diary for we things. We love a deadline. Yeah. I have to, I have to do that with this podcast to keep things moving. Is yeah, to go. especially when you're working for yourself. Yeah. It's just pick a date, do it. What does it mean to be having this exhibition for you? Oh, it means a lot. It doesn't just mean a lot for me, but it means a lot for all the people that have taken the time to sit for me and to 
be that vulnerable person in front of a massive camera. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Aaron knows the size of my camera. It's a it's a beast. It's a large format, 160-year-old camera, an original wet plate, you know, from America. And so, yeah, it's uh, for, for those people who have taken that time and, you know, being generous enough to – to share that vulnerability, to share their story with me. I'm I'm also, yeah, it means so much for not just myself but for all those people to be able to tell their story and for other people to kind of understand what it is that they do and the story that they have to tell and all the lessons that I've learnt through meeting these people and having those conversations similar to what you do through, you know, having a podcast and being able to have those important conversations with people. Yeah, I guess from my own experiences, you never know. I never, I literally never know. I can't predict where this is going to go, or who I'm going to meet next. You, for example, mm-hmm. prime example. Um, and then once you get into the, once you get your head around, okay, I'm going to be talking to this person. You do some preparation. You kind of become consumed by that next, um, next person who you're going to talk to, work with, and. It's the preparation plus it's the conversation and all the things that you cannot predict that are going to come up in that conversation and the time that they're actually sitting with you. Mm. you early on in the piece, I used to over, over, overthink it hugely. Like, well, oh, if yeah, they say this, I'm going to prep. And I had this, like, it used to take me hours and hours to prep. There's so much that you said just before. So what's the process that you go through? What does it look like for you when you ask someone to sit for you? What does that process look like? Not necessarily the the development of film process, but the process of what is that day or hour or two? I don't even know how long that actually takes. Yeah, well, I mean, it's been, I guess, a little bit different throughout the time of, you know, at first it was like taking photographs of people who were just who were just around, and I was like, "Oh, you know, can you sit in front of my camera because I want to, you know, play around with wet plate?" And they all just happened to be creatives because that was the space that I was in. That was in a co-working space with a bunch of amazing creatives and artists. And it, you know, in in that, all of those people had an interesting story to tell as creatives. So I then kind of started to think about the fact that. It was so interesting for me to photograph those people specifically and in that process I started to learn a lot about the creative process and where where they were and where I wanted to be and having those like conversations really kind of helped me on my path of kind of you know showing up for myself as an artist it was kind of like oh I want to photograph you and talk about you and and show what it is that you're doing as an artist and in the meantime you know unknowingly like I was doing that also for me showing people what I do through the process of showing other people what they do does that make sense yeah 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 I found also it's a good people don't often take the time to think about their own story like yeah until somebody asks them about why they do what they do and they're like oh that's a good question you sort of dig into it and they yeah when they put it together <clears throat> and i can imagine it's kind of the same for you when you sit down with these creatives and the people that you take portraits of 
is nobody ever asks you like why you do what you do. And I think unless you're really self-aware and you're very used to that sort of introspection and you're not every day sort of asking yourself and wondering, you know, sometimes I get caught up navel-gazing and waste a lot <laughs> of time, right? But when you ask somebody what they do, what they do and what motivates them or what this art or craft means to them, it's sometimes it's the first time that they've actually really thought about it. Yeah, and it's a really it's actually a really powerful way to connect with someone and that's been the main joy in what I've been doing all this time is when you put someone in front of a camera, especially my camera, <laughs> it is it's such a vulnerable thing to be seen in that way, especially in particularly my wet plate work where the aesthetic of it, it's so detailed. Mm. It is like you see the pores in your skin. You see, you know, there's there's something that captures almost like a part of them that is it's scary because when they see that photo back, it's a very emotional reaction that I get from them because they've never seen themselves that way before. It's literally showing them everything. 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 And that's scary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I've had mixed, you know, reactions. Some that are very emotional, very like, you know, it's like they're seeing, they're really seeing themselves and they, you know, they're very grateful of that experience and that it's, you know, it's powerful and uplifting. And it's like, oh, wow, I look like that. That's, you know, because we're so good at, you know, picking out all the little things that we want to change about our body or, you know, I, specifically in women that I photographed. But I think there's also this, yeah, that there's that kind of positive and the, the negative. But I think at the end of the day, people that I have photographed are very taken back and grateful that they've been able to actually see themselves in that way that they haven't before. Yeah, in a, in a completely brand new light. Yeah, yeah, and raw, so raw. Yeah. And it's really like that's why I keep, I mean, especially the wet plate stuff, part of that is part of that really kind of intense stare that a lot of um, – you know, those portraits all straight on through the barrel of the lens kind of. Straight into the soul sort Yeah, of stuff. but also that's kind of, um, that's also due to the process itself because I've been working with natural light and the time that it takes to actually take the photo sometimes is up to nine, ten seconds. So they actually have to stay still. I've got right. a little head brace behind them and they have to stay that still for that long so that I can take the photograph and that it's not blurry. So that's why back in the day you've got all those people looking very serious. You're like, oh, why didn't no one smile back then? <laughs> Pretty <laughs> hard to why. do a selfie with your camera, right? <clears throat> Impossible, I've tried. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, So, but that also, the beauty in that is that you get that time, those seconds that they're looking through that lens, it's almost like their breath, their energy is all going into that, you know, those few yeah. seconds where the lens is open 
and it's kind of, you know, shining back into the back of the glass plate, which is then, you know, etched basically with light onto the back of the light sensitive material and then processed. So yeah, there's there's this intensity, this energy that is in that one plate. And because it's, you know, it's one, there's like that's the one glass plate that it creates. If that goes, that's it. Like if that smashes and that's happened many times or it goes up in flames in the varnishing process because, yeah, I've had plates where I've done the varnish and the flames caught on and it's gone up in flames and I spent a whole day making one plate. <laughs> but, you know, there's something really um, beautiful about that as well because mm. as frustrating and there's been many tears in that, especially, you know, working on deadlines and exhibitions and stuff, but the fragility and the um, of that object, of that, that photograph um, makes it so special and you really kind of value that that photograph which is something that we don't really have appreciation for now with the way digital photography has kind of you know I'm not dissing digital photography and then I mean there's many um, positives in, in being able to take digital photographs but there's something in that analog process that is like permanent but also impermanent you know there's something really beautiful about that the thought of um, so meditation has been a big part of my story in the last number of months, right? And the impermanence is something that is a very big theme of that, right? And when you were describing how a glass plate could just go up in flames, and that's just the one thing, right? You could very easily get into a situation of attachment and you know, if that glass plate is destroyed for whatever reason, you know, it could ruin your day. <laughs> uh-huh. Um, mm-hmm. But then, like you say, there's also that beauty of knowing how fragile it is and enjoying it for the moment that it exists. If that makes it all the way through the process, then that's 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 great, right? But there's so many... Um, there's so many parts of your process that I don't even fully understand yet, but I'm making a gross assumption. There's so many variables that could, that do affect the outcome of that photo if it even turns out to be a photo at the end. You know, it could just mm-hmm. be a pile of blo- broken glass or a smudge or whatever. Mm-hmm. At every step of the way, it's chemistry, it's light, it's physics, all at play to deliver this one photo. It's almost like a meditation in itself, the way that this whole process plays out. I've I've also got questions around, and I think I know why, but I want to hear it from you. It's like, why did you pick probably the most laborious photographic process on the planet? <laughs> in history to specialize in such a good question (laughs) I ask myself that most days (laughs) I think you said it beautifully the fact that it is this meditation this process that you know that involves so many steps and so much possibility of it completely failing 
And that's like, it's such a metaphor for life, really, mm. lame as that might sound, but it's like, it's true. Like everything that we do in our day-to-day lives, we have, you know, we wake up and we have a coffee, we, you know, make ourselves breakfast, we get on with our day. With the wet plate process, there is so much that we have to, that I actually have to kind of think out and plan, but at the end of the day, I still have no control of the outcome. Well, I mean, to an extent, but so many things can go wrong. There's also, you know, the fact that I could just, you know, pick up a digital camera and take a photograph and two two minutes later it can be on my computer and then it's digitalized. It can be on Instagram five minutes later. You know, there, I, you know, I, I appreciate that, Photography now can allow us for that kind of quick communication with imagery, but there's also um, so much that is lost in that, which is the hand of an artist. The fact that, you know, everything that I do in that process can affect how that image turns out. When I'm like coating my, um, you know, collodion onto the plate, if I miss a corner, that's going to come up in the end image. If I put my thumbprint on it, you know, that'll come up. All these little, you know, all these little things that kind of where I'm involved in each of those steps will be the result. And so, you know, when I'm putting the plate into the silver bath, if I don't do it completely, like, fluidly, it'll have, like, little lines or little marks. But sometimes those little marks, those little things that happen on the plate along the way are actually the most beautiful, like, part of it because you can see that there's something that has been created there, like with the hand of the artist, you know. Yep, it's those imperfections. Yeah, all of those yep. imperfections are <clears throat> kind of part of the beauty of it. Although I will say that there was a big obsession with me being perfect in this process from the very beginning that I felt every plate that I was making wasn't perfect so it wasn't being seen. <laughs> And so, like, I became very obsessive over, you know, making sure that they they were aesthetically and also, like, technically perfect. And I... Sorry, I just want to jump in here. No, go. You are a Virgo. I'm a Virgo. That's a good thing to (laughs) add. We are both Virgos. (laughs) You can relate. You're you're very much a Virgo. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you for making me feel a little bit better about the fact that, yeah, that was a, a big problem for a while. Um, but also part of the, the creative process of letting go of perfection, mm. like letting go of this kind of need to get everything perfect before it goes out the door, you know, because when people were coming into my dark room, the, the few that I allowed in at the time were like, these are amazing. These like, oh my God, I love that one. And I'm like, yeah, but there's that line there and I don't want to, you know, and, you know, people love that and then I kind of slowly allowed myself to just kind of let go a little bit in the process but the fact that it is so you know methodical in the science of you know 0.00 of a gram of this if that's not added to that in the right way in the right temperature the humidity everything you know you might end up spending the whole day and not getting any results. So I had to, in a way, 
He's he can got his see hands how it, <laughs> over his face, going, "Oh God!" Uh, <laughs> but that's, uh, I mean, but the whole journey of that, of actually coming into this process, and that's kind of where you started this this question was, "Why did I come into this process?" Because, well, firstly, to torture myself. <laughs> That was that was achieved it's, it's in a way. Meditation. It's called meditation. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, you see it as torture until you actually realize that it's like the most beautiful gift. Yeah. Because it has taught me so much. Yeah. And so, yeah, there was this kind of process in being, you know, ticking all those boxes and you know, getting everything completely right to then letting that all go and just like having fun with the process and not being attached to the final outcome or just like even in that experience, you know, a few days before my exhibition in Canberra two years ago when one of my key pieces, which was like already scanned in and, you know, on the catalogue and everything as I was varnishing it, which is the final process, and you're literally using lavender oil, gum sandarac, which is like a sap, like a um, a sap that gets – broken down through heat it's from a tree in Africa which is using the same chemical process that they did 160 170 years ago that that's that kind of final you know talking about meditation you literally end with like this beautiful smell of lavender oil like and you know the gum sandrack mixed together and you pour that over the plate to set it because otherwise it's basically exposed silver mm. which is you know it will tarnish just like jewelry mm. so you 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 pour that over the plate as that final thing to set it it caught on fire and the whole plate an eight by ten glass plate went up in flames how does it catch fire you actually got to pour the you've got to pour the varnish over the top of the plate yep. and then you basically you know tip off the excess and then you put it back over the open flame to basically to bake it to bake it to to set it yep but i my, the, the flame was too close to when i was pouring out and you've got ether and alcohol mixed in <laughs> so it's highly flammable yeah. and so as the flame was there and i you know i poured it a little bit cl- too close to the flame the flame just jumped straight on there and destroyed went up on flames and I had the plate and my hand was holding this flaming glass plate and I just threw it against the wall and I had a friend filming it. I actually <laughs> have, the vi- the, have the footage and, you know, there was a part of me that goes, you know, I failed, you know, like that's like I was devastated and crying about it and then, you know, you go through that but then – there's also like that's life. That's part of the process. And people also want to see the failures. But at the time I just thought, oh, like I don't want to show that that part. But in the end, you know, Did I you keep the glass. Did you frame the glass? <laughs> I didn't. I think that all went in the bin. Uh, it was just like a runny, glossy <clears throat> mess. Because that would have been that would have been interesting just to to frame it up and tell that story. Yeah, I actually do. That's funny that you say that because my very first wet plate, which is actually I made that when I was doing a course in um, in Victoria with one of the you know masters in Australia, um, Ellie Young, who's awesome. She's got um, Gold Street Studios in Victoria, in Trentham East. I think she's still there. 
little plug for her because she's a legend if you want to get into alternative processes in photography. I, I created this beautiful little five by seven inch black glass plate of a rose and I was like so happy with it and I was just like it was so beautiful and that's kind of what got me hooked to the process. I was like I don't know how a photograph can be so beautiful and the fact that it is glass mm. and as I was admiring it, it slipped out of my hands and broke in three pieces <laughs> and I was like okay right that's um that's a bit shit I um don't know how I feel about that but I was like pretty determined to glue it back together what I realized is like when I put it back together or piece the pieces back together they were so much more, it's kind of like the kintsugi thing in ceramics, like you, they patch it up and then they put the gold in, in yes, between and it becomes more that. beautiful. Um, I ended up framing it for an exhibition because I was like so, like I just wanted to kind of honour that first plate of mine and I've got it at home actually and it's framed but it's like the pieces are all separated so there's all gaps in between so you're actually seeing the you know the gaps between the image so that you can actually tell that it is glass plate so it kind of speaks to the process and to the actual material itself honoring that and also honoring that beautiful kind of that the symbol of the broken rose yeah, yeah. accentuating the broken yeah yeah true how did you what were your how did you get into photography and what were your early influences like why photography, I guess. Yeah. Or why? I guess you started. You said you started off doing arts. Well, I went to a performing arts school, right? And um, I wanted to be an actress, right. so I was like well into acting and theatre. And after after I graduated, I wanted to get into acting, and I went to Actor Centre Australia, and I did courses there. Um, you know, shortlist shortlisted for NIDA. Um, you know, for their full time course, but then I kind of. I realised the difficulty in getting into that particular uh, medium, like in in terms of what was going to be available because people were, you know, trying to say, oh, you know, it's going to be really hard and not that I then chose something much easier, but I was like, oh, I'm just going to go to art school and, and study photography because I always had um, an interest in photography and I think I've got my dad to thank for that because he was – always a bit of an amateur photographer. He had film cameras um, when I was growing up and I learned how to use that and there was something in the photograph that I, yeah, that I always just really was drawn to and particularly the process of like analogue film. So that was something that I always, yeah, was, was drawn to and then going to university and actually studying it was an interesting experience because everything at that stage was changing from analog to digital. Mm. So the university they went to, they were actually kind of changing things around. And at the time they were kind of restructuring their dark room. So I didn't have dark rooms in my, in my whole study of photography. We did a few classes at um, ACP, which is Australia Centre of Photography at the time. It's no longer there. That's, is that the one up in Paddington? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, as a student, having, uh, you know, a full fee-paying student and then having to go up to ACP but then also have to, like, pay for a membership there and then actually have to pay for your time and things, you know, as a, as a student, it was just like, oh, can't afford that. I'm just going to 
you know, do digital. So everything mm. was in digital and I kind of I, – I, I didn't have any interest in it then. I, I felt, you know, those first few classes in the darkroom, that was where I was going to be. And then it just as, – as everything was much more focused on digital photography, I just – I didn't – I love the kind of conceptual ideas and, you know, when we had projects we had to, you know – you know, respond to certain themes or concepts and I love that part of it, but I didn't really like the process of working with the digital medium. And so it wasn't until after I graduated I went and did a residency over in Italy. Um, I got accepted for an artist residency in this tiny little town called Guardia San Fromondi, <laughs> which is like no one, not even like, the Italians that I speak to know where that is. They're like, what is that? It's about half an hour south of uh, Naples, this tiny little town that doesn't even have, like doesn't allow cars in the actual because it's like built up on this hill. You, they, there was a big earthquake many years back and basically the town left and then people slowly started to, to go back and populate the area. But there's, um, you know, the houses there, like these massive houses are like, 10,000 euros <laughs> like right. like the lady that I was staying with she's a she is a Scottish artist and that's what she paid for the place that we then and I ended up staying for the for the duration of the residency program anyway long story short because I'll just snap straight to the fact that when I went and did my residency there um I was like I don't want to bring any any ca- like digital cameras, I'm just going to bring one, you know, 35 mil camera, you know, see where that leads me. The camera that I brought ended up not working. So I was just like, I, I have no idea what I'm going to do here. I've got six weeks to produce uh, an exhibition because then we put in like have an exhibition at the end of it. And I was working with five, five other artists around the world. And I ended up collecting, and you've seen the little cameras, I started okay. collecting um rubbish from sounds so bizarre but there is a reason because I was so interested in the fact that all of the residents had to hang their little bags of rubbish on a little hook on their front door for the people you know for the Italian men to come with their little trolleys and actually individually grab the rubbish because there wasn't any cars so kind of was became obsessed with this idea of like people's you know rubbish kind of representing how they, you know, how they live and what like it tells you so much yeah. about what's in that household, blah, blah, blah. So then I just um, I started making these little pinhole cameras out of the rubbish that I found and met this guy who was at this party a few nights um, after that and said, because he, he had a film camera around his neck and I said, oh, you shoot film, like where do you develop your photos? And he's like, oh, I've got a dark room like just a few doors down from here and he's like you can come by and use it so mate was making these little ca- these little pinhole cameras and then was able to use his darkroom and the process of making those cameras and then actually you know putting the paper in there going around the town for fo- you know photographing scenes with these tiny little cameras that you know are just literally pieces of cardboard and like I made some with like an old old tea bags and like yeah did you bring, you brought that? I bought the is tea bag. The one, is that the one today? Yeah. Do you want to bring, do you want to go get it? It's right here. Yeah, yeah. 
Right, the teabag camera. Wow. Yeah, I saw this the other day and I'm like, what the heck is this? <laughs> That's actually a functioning camera, believe it or not. So you can take that little front bit off. Take the. Pull yeah, it like from pull here. it, pull it. Okay. Yeah, there you go. Oh. And then that's the image inside. Yeah, get, so do your, they, get your head around that one. Do they teach you how to, um, who taught you how to make a pinhole camera? Is this all done? It? YouTube, baby. YouTube, really? <laughs> I just started researching. So you broke your camera. So your camera got broken. The one camera you took to Italy broke. Mm. And then your next step was make a camera. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. And then how soon did you move? So the bit I'm the the bit I missed was like mm. you like you, you have a fascination with going through other people's rubbish. Yes, we've, yeah, that's we've established true. that. Not always. Not creepy. But when that did you kind of get the idea to go, well, I'm gonna go through people's rubbish and make pinhole cameras? Like what was that creative <laughs> leap? Because um, from, just from trying to literally pull something out of nowhere. Just fo- like resor- being resourceful. Yeah, that as well. Also kind of making comment on what what I was seeing in front of me, which is kind of the beauty of being on an artist residency because you are in a completely new place and you're inspired and, you know, motivated to kind of use what's in front of you, uh, which is why I chose, like, I just want to let everything go and just react and, you know, respond to whatever comes up. So it was kind of just going with the flow kind of, you know, completely improvising and seeing what I could come up with. And I was under a time pressure, so I just kind of started to play around with things and then, you know, one thing led to the other and I, yeah, you know, this is a series of events and meeting that guy and being able to use his dark room and um, and then being able to have that, all, all the cameras lined up with each of the photographs that I took with each of the cameras. Amazing. That's the end of the exhibition. Yeah. It's incredible. And the the funniest part was like when people were looking at the cameras, you know, one guy picks one up and he looks inside, he goes, where does the iPhone go? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, no, that's that's a camera. Uh, that is that is it. I, oh, for, I forgot. People were blown away. I forgot what, what period of time we were actually in because you're in this remote town in Italy and I actually forgot that iPhones existed. And when you said you researched on YouTube, I was like, of course, there was still there internet. Was still like internet it just felt like, because <laughs> all this stuff is so analog. Yeah. There's no internet like involved in old, your process. Yeah. There's no, yeah, great. That would have been amazing. So how many um, how many cameras and how many photos were in that exhibition? Um, I think I had nine cameras all up and probably, so nine times three, I'm not good at maths, that's 27, is it? Ish. Ish, 30. Yep. Photographs, you're, something like that. You're a photographer, not a mathematician. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for saying that. I saw I didn't have to. No, no. It's all good. <laughs> yeah, but so when I returned, actually, after that trip, I decided I want to go back to uni and do my postgrad. And then I kind of came to um, one of the teachers that I wanted to work with and I said, you know, this is the, you know, because you have to do an application to pitch what it is that you want to do in that year. And I said, this is a work that I created in my residency and I want to now build a camera, like an actual 8 by 10 large format camera from scratch and teach myself how to work in 19th century photography. Don't ask me how I came to that. I, I, it still kind of baffles me how I got to that 
Um, but I think it was really the fact that I enjoyed making the cameras and and the fact that you can literally create a photograph from nothing, from rubbish that you found in yeah. someone else's rubbish bag. <laughs> and then creating, you know, from raw materials, from raw chemistry, a photograph um, using a process that is over 160 years old. So it was just, it was something that I came to and usually when I get ideas like that, it's like, okay, I'm just going to have to make <laughs> that happen. Now. Get out of the way. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, really? Really this one? Did this uh, idea have to drop in like right yeah. now? It's really inconvenient. <laughs> yeah. But, and you know, I wasn't even allowed to um, to do it at this school. I actually wasn't allowed the chemistry on the campus so I actually built a dark room in my parents yeah. hobby room what's a hobby their second what's kitchen a Hang on, sorry yeah. it wasn't a pantry before it was a hobby room it was like right. a second kitchen oh yeah kind of thing. dark room of course yeah sinks yeah yeah so had sink and take like that kind of old school um you know you have like plasticky material over the top of benches yeah final like something like, like that yeah yeah, I forget what that's called. Yeah, anyway. So it was that, it was I'm handy. Assuming that got dissolved with all the chemistry, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If if my mum's listening, she'll be yeah, she'll be nodding her head going, "Oh, yeah, that time." That yeah. time Ren put a dark room in our hobby room. Now that's what I said to you when we met on uh, Tuesday. I said this is either a dark room or a meth kitchen. Like this is a <laughs> <laughs> It's only I've only Walter White stuff. Yeah, I was I watched Breaking Bad, so that's my only point of reference for yeah, cooking me. I got that one. But um I'm just really fascinated like how like there's this theme of you being resourceful and this industrial industriousness yeah, building things right. with your hands. Mm-hmm. Like you take you'd prefer to, to build it yourself, take the long way, get your hands dirty, create it yourself. It's it's freaking rad. Like I really love that. And yeah, and I think that's where definitely did that come from? that's my dad. My dad is, you know, one of the most resourceful, incredibly intelligent men I know. And he, that's that's the thing. If if it's broken, he'll fix it. He's, he's an engineer he's, or something. Well, he's got a background in engineering, yeah. but he's um, that's like he did social work and. And chemistry, I think, as like two majors in, back in university when he was um, in Germany. He only, yeah, so he actually, he was born in Germany and grew up there. Kind of, you know, he's a post-World War Two story where his family was di- displaced and he was quite young growing up with, um, you know, his parents who both passed away when he was very young and then he had to kind of, you know, make his way in the world and he was a lot younger than his two siblings and he went, and worked when he was like 14 as under an engineer and learnt, you know, how to take apart, you know, machines and put them back together and, mm. you know, make things out of wood. So he, he just, he was amazing with, you know, built all of our furniture in our home and, you know, he just could pick up a few tools and be able to make something if he put his mind to it. So I kind of grew up with that mentality with my dad of like if anything is – broken you know you can fix it you don't have to throw it away like you have to just utilize your skills and the resourcefulness like your all the resources around you to create something out of something that's maybe broken or 
were just not there to begin with. Exactly, yeah. And a hustler as well. And imagine, like, if he grew up largely without parents sort of thing, he would have had to stand on his own feet and make things happen for himself as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So that kind of – that I saw that drive in him and, you know, through all of those stories and you know, those kind of stories that he taught us growing up, me and my two sisters, was that whole idea of, you know, you – you have to work for everything that you create, like you know, you like in a in a good in a good way, like in a positive. <laughs> like he wasn't like you know, like really hard on us or anything. Like he was very supportive of what we wanted to do, but specifically in in the idea of like when you had to create, like if you can make it, why would you buy it? <laughs> that yeah. kind of thing, yeah. Which was um. Yeah, always an interesting, you know, he's an inventor as well. Like he, he made solar panels that heated up our pool when we were, you know, younger. You know, he created, yeah, all of our furniture. Like he wanted to invent a system in the car where um, it, like the petrol converted into, I don't know, like so many like weird and wacky inventions <laughs> that he's created over the years of like spreading everything out on the kitchen table and taking things apart. So and your pitching. house was a workshop. Oh, always. Yeah. Always. Yeah. And now he's, you know, moved up the coast and he's got a whole, you know, we call it the man shed. Oh, yeah. Like I'd under imagine. the house. And it's just like all the Makita, you know, tools you can possibly imagine and more. And he's actually started a little microbrewery in there as well. Of course and he he's has. Making his own beer, his own gin and whiskey and everything. And he's got the whole <laughs> neighbors <laughs> over every Friday I hope night. The house is in short, eh? <laughs> Brewing moonshine and shit down there. Oh. Uh, yeah, my mum's gone through a lot. <laughs> Very patient. Yeah. I grew up in a house where my parents do a lot of craft and stuff as well, like particularly stained glass and things. And so every flat surface was mostly like a surface for laying out glass or <laughs> new panels for shades and stuff like that. So I grew up with a lot of every every surface in the house was a work surface, which is yeah, it's awesome. a nice environment. I like yeah, it's always a bit messy, but I like growing up in that sort of environment. Where yeah, and I was just so used to it. So that was just like what you did. So for me to say, oh, I, you know, I wanted to build that camera because, you know, like for me it doesn't seem out of this world. Like it might surprise you, but for me that was just what it's just so what I did. It's so odd these days, like in our – like you were talking about digital photography before and I was like, yeah, because digital photography is – literally disposable you take a thousand shots you hold the you hold your finger down on the trigger and boom you've got a gajillion shots mm -hmm. infinite amount of disk space like there's really no there's no cost there's no, like it's free why am i telling you this because in this day and age everything is you pay for it it arrives, it works, it takes amazing photos. I'm speaking of like iPhones and digital cameras, right? Of course you need to know how to take a compose a shot and stuff like that, right? But it's just so odd, like so different for someone to be doing, to build all this stuff themselves, like to be so involved in the process of building the equipment from like from the moment that, intuition that idea taps you on the shoulder and says hey we've got to build a camera out of rubbish 
to <laughs> to exhibition, like you've got your hands in it dirty the whole way. It's just so different. Maybe I don't get out enough. Like <laughs> maybe I just don't know enough. Well, I think that's like part of being an artist is like you do have to have a level of practicality, like mm. not saying that every artist necessarily does it. Every artist is very different in the way that they work. But I think especially artists that chop and change ideas or, oh, I want to be working in photography one day. Oh, okay, cool. I mm. want to, you know, make a sculpture this time. Like, oh, I want to paint this time. You know, moving between different mediums and different ways of working, becoming kind of interchangeable like that. I think there was also always a part of me that thought like, okay, as an artist, like what but what kind of an artist do I want to be? I want to be, okay, I want to be a photographer. Like I want to work in photography. But there's always been, you know, a part of my work is photography. It's it's also sculpture. It's also, you know, there's so many different parts of it that I actually have been moving in a lot of different mediums throughout its installation, you know, its light projection. There's There's been so many different ways that I've kind of worked with photography but I think why I was particularly drawn to those processes that involved you know something that was tangible like actually being involved in the whole process of making it was because you know when you buy a painting there's such a there's such a what's the word like there's such respect in the fact that you've got a canvas that has been painted by the hand of the artist rather than, you know, you always want an original over a print, obviously, and there's mm. there's a reason for that because, you know, the artist has actually stood in front of that canvas and painted that and, used, you know, there's breath on there, there's bits of their hair, there's, you know, DNA, there's like there's something so beautiful in being able to like be touching that that the artist got to be involved with. I think for me when I was printing digitally or something, it was like, you know, you send it off to a printer who then presses the button to – and by the end of it, it's like I feel so detached from what it is that I'm creating when it was like made by my hands and I can hand that over and it's like it's like that that feeling of really creating something from from scratch and that was what was most satisfying for me. I feel that with my own design work as well. And I was talking to a mate about it on just, just the other day, actually. And I just showed him some logos that I was working on for some branding. And I always start from like pencil and paper, like always. And now I've got my iPad. I quite like using that as a way to quickly mock up like colors. And, but I, I always do my original stuff by hand and I know a lot of designers will just go straight onto the computer and start putting boxes and squares and shapes and shit. And that's that's probably their process. But there's something about getting your hands dirty and the organicness and having all the the imperfections that come with that along the way. I don't know, something there. Oh, absolutely. I'm all now about the imperfections. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah. what I mean, what says it's an imperfection as well, you know? Okay, so there's a couple of things. And one is you're talking about the multimodal type of approach of different arts and artists who can switch between sculpture and photography and performance art and whatever. I feel like that's um, 
they're just avenues to express yourself, right? And yeah, you that's kind what of, I'm saying. You know, is that's that's the whole the whole piece there is that whatever you can put your hands to express something is is why you then become so adaptable to th- certain things or yeah. you know actually going through that process of going oh okay well if I can't if I don't have a working camera I'll just just make one I'll figure out Got how it. to do that and then I'll be able to yeah. solve that problem it's like for me it's just pr- problem solving it's like troubleshooting all the time yeah 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 if you don't have those if you don't have those resources then you're just looking for okay well how can I express this with what we do have Exactly. Um, Find another way. Yeah. Yeah. As I said, I've got my dad to thank for for that because that was just how my brain like grew up thinking, very similar to how he brought us up in in that way. So, as an artist, it, it was actually such a such a gift, really being being exposed to that. Yeah. Is your you got a sister? I've got two sisters. Two yeah. sisters. Are they the same sort of? Are they both resourceful as well? They're both very resourceful, but they're working in very different fields to me. But yeah, I guess, yeah, yeah very, you know, creative in, in very different ways. You know, my older sister, she's really beautiful chef. Like she, I mean, oh. she, well, she's not a chef. She's actually a nurse, but she's incredible cook and yeah. she loves baking. And, you know, every Christmas she's making these amazing gingerbread houses that are, you know, she expresses herself in, in that way. And she's like very attention to detail with all that kind of stuff. And um, yeah, definitely resourceful in, in that kind of way as well. And yeah, my younger sister, Christina, who's a social worker and she, she is also very creative and resourceful in what she does, but in a very different way, you know, we're all very different, but I think we all still have that appreciation, that kind of approach that has been given to us from our dad. Hey, you know what's good? You're good. You know what else is good? Subscribing. So subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform. Give it a rating, a good rating, an astoundingly beautiful rating, and share it because sharing is caring. And sharing and rating and subscribing all goes a hell of a long way to keeping this thing afloat. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you. When we were talking the other day, you mentioned about, I think it was the bike mechanic. Oh, yeah. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. And we are talking about the bike mechanic and yeah, that's right. thinking about <clears throat> people who may not be artists, right? They don't, mm. they don't have a brush. They don't have a camera, like what we the box we put artists mm-hmm, in, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> you want to talk about that? Yeah, I think, well, that's a, a good lead into going back to the title, the artist lens. So, and in my experience of actually photographing the people that I chose to photograph, not all of them are necessarily artists, you know, even, you know, the photographs that I've taken of my sisters or my mom and dad and like, but in, in those images is that there's still a conversation around how they how they see the world through the artist lens. For example, with my yeah, with the bike mechanic that I took a photo of just locally down the road, because a part of it was looking at the local people around me and seeing how they kind of work in in their field and how how it is that they see what they do. And the passion, it really comes down for me, it comes down to to passion, like 
that people will wake up in the morning and they are excited to go to work and they put their heart and soul into their calling, whether it is, you know, putting a your your paintbrush to a to paper or taking a photograph or going to work and fixing bikes for a living. You know, if that lights you up and that's what you're passionate about, then I feel that it is the same as the way that we live as artists. Like it's that the calling, the 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 process of actually following what lights you up and your your passion and that is like so powerful and it is in in so many other things apart from you know what we as you said classify as being artistic or creative Mm. and that kind of yeah that's also the work that I do as a co-founder of Lucrem is kind of support you know we're a bunch of artists but we also got got an accountant in there we've got a wedding planner we've got you know like we had a plumber in there you know but the power of actually collaborating and having people who are in different fields that are not, you know, creative, but when you put them in a room with people who are writers, painters, sculptors, photographers, whatever, the magic that happens from that, and a clear, beautiful example is Tom, the accountant from La Creme, ended up writing a children's book with Miguel, who's an, you know, he's an animator and he does design and, yeah, an incredible drawer, and so they created a children's book together and you know like just the magic that happens from those collaborations and joining those people together is is quite amazing i'm sorry I th- have i gone off on a tangent again no no i'm just trying <laughs> to how I'm i ended just up trying there. To find a way in it's magnetic that's um yeah that's a good word that was the that was the word i was thinking about last night was like you can't help but be attracted to people when they are doing something that they're actually passionate about mm-hmm. and they are putting their, they're doing the thing that they're creating something from nothing. They are doing the thing that sort of brings them joy. Nothing sexier than that. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's wild. Like, um, and you can't fake it either. Mm-mm. And that's right. And that's like, whatever it is that you do just make sure that you love it <laughs> and there's no other reason to be doing the things that you, that doesn't light you up like what is the point mm. i mean you know in saying that i do understand that okay maybe what it is that lights them up is not going to be able to bring an income in and that's mm. a whole another conversation around even if that doesn't make sure that you do the things on the side that light you up Definitely want to talk about that. Yeah. So, like, um, making making room for those, making room for your art, because mm. you don't, you're not, you're not Renata, photographer two four seven, right? No. You're also a teacher. Yeah, I do. I do private tuition of dark, like introduction to darkroom photography, and I work as a visual arts technician at a school where I, you know, assist the teachers in setting up for the facilities, the darkroom or the lighting studio, more specifically photography because that's kind of my um, specifics, a whole lot of other stuff. But, you know, I worked in hospitality for 10 years supporting my study and and my art practice and hospitality. I mean, you always have a love-hate relationship to it, but at the end of the day, like I've been so grateful for my time in hospo and what it's taught me and what it's enabled me, like what it's 
enabled me. And oh dear. That's that's <laughs> not the opposite. That's like it's it's enabled me, but it's is enable the opposite. Enable when you say how enable. it's enabled me. Now that that's perfect. Yeah. Fine. Okay. How it's enabled <laughs> me. There you go. I knew I get stuck on one word. It hasn't disabled um, you. No, so that's it's right. You. Yeah. That, I, so I picked the right one. Great. Yeah. Um, it's enabled <laughs> me to support the expensive process that is wet plate photography. So I would be, you know, in the dark room printing and then six o'clock got a shift down at the at the bar and doing that till the night and doing it again the next day. So for me, yeah, if it didn't if if the work that I was doing wasn't able to support me financially, I'd always find another way to do it. And I would never rely on my creative my in my on my creative output to pay the bills. And I think actually a really good, you know, on that line, have you heard of Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert? Elizabeth Gilbert. Yeah. The writer. The writer. Um she Pray Love. Yeah, she was actually. Yeah, and she did that TED talk, but I haven't heard of Big Magic. Yeah, or- Big Magic is I uh, yeah, one of my go-to kind of books when I'm kind of going through my creative lulls or whatever, my ebbs and flows of my creative process because she she puts it so beautifully about this whole idea that you know, don't expect your creativity to pay your bills. You know, you always have to find, you know, you almost like have to have a love affair. I love how she says that with your art, you know, when there's any moment, you know, sneak out and get into the dark room, uh, make yeah, your yeah. work and yeah. – um, this kind of whole concept of like, there's no, there's no excuses why you, I mean, we, we make all the excuses in the world, but really, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to be an artist cause it doesn't, it doesn't pay my bills, but do you love it? Do you want to do it? Does it light you up when, when you do it? Well, then you'll find it, you'll find a way. You got to make room for what's important, right? Yeah. Whether that's art or health or mental health or your family or if it's important, if it's really important to you, then you've just got to make room for it. And I think we get like it's easy for our time to get chewed up doing the unconscious to Netflix. Netflix is easy to blame, so I'm just going to blame Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> but one. like, um, yeah, it's easy to freaking get home from work, go through the routine and just turn off and let that sort of chew into, let that be the reason why you don't do your art Mm -hmm. because I just don't have enough time. Mm -hmm. You need to have a look at your schedule and work out how important is your art and what can you Remove. It's a prioritization thing. Yeah, You're where not- are you spending your time? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the funny thing is, I mean, the ironic part of that is that we say we don't have enough time and or energy. But when mm. you actually get into the thing that lights you up, you'll be surprised how much energy you do have for that and yep. how, you know, if you focus on that and your all of those creative ideas come flying out, you will like, you'll be sleeping five, six hours and be like ready to go in the morning and wake up with energy. Like, and you know, we you always go through flows of that yeah. in the creative process where you feel like sometimes you just have 
nothing to give and you, you know, go through, that's kind of like the highs and lows of, of being in that. But you need to respect that. Yeah, like absolutely. That's, but that's, that's part of it. Part of the process and it takes, you know, it's only really, I'm only really, really starting to learn that now. Um, you know, it's taken me a long time to actually get to that point where, I respect that because a lot of the time it's just like, no, I got to create all the time. Yep. I got to, you know, push it out and like, you know, even just getting this show together and actually being like, okay, it's been six years, <laughs> like it's time, like do it, like. Yeah. And as I said, you know, I put that deadline on it, which is really setting a, a time frame to actually get it done. But now that I've done that, all I want to do is get in there and create. And uh, it's been, you know, sometimes you're your creativity, like being part of that creativity journey, you really find it moments where your creative process can be like torturous, like, Mm. and that's also Mm. to do with, you know, where you are in that create part of the creative process. If you're not a hundred percent confident in just like completely, sorry, I lost my train of thought because my, my phone just went off. I thought I had it on silence. Sorry about that. I didn't hear a thing. <laughs> it was like vibrating was, very oh, slowly. Was it? And I was, I was like, oh, this I is a solid that. table because I didn't feel a thing. I was just looking over at the wicked um, artwork behind you. Oh, how good are yeah, vinyl a lot of, covers? Yeah, this, anyway. Sorry, I feel like I lost that one. No, you didn't. You want to cut that um, brownie up? You yeah. Cu- you cut Should the brownie we- up. We're not gonna. We're not gonna make people sit through this, are we? Maybe. <laughs> See how it sounds, guys. This is a really delicious-looking gluten-free brownie from Fuel Cafe. Thanks, Fuel. You're keeping us fueled. A um. There you go. Oh, amazing chocolate brownie. Thank oh, you. Oh, it's nice and sticky. There it is. I think it's got. Oh, no, this one doesn't have walnuts in it. Oh, above and beyond. I always think about you've only got a limited amount of beans to spend each day, creative beans to spend. <laughs> I like that. And um, some days you just go, you smash it out of the park, you're in the state of flow and everything's good and then you plan for the very next day to do exactly the same thing <laughs> and then the next day you turn up to your canvas, your computer, your pad, your dark room, whatever, and you're just like brain dead. Mm-hmm. And you're like, okay. <laughs> and then you start beating yourself up about it. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's a that's a big one to get into. Yeah, absolutely. I think the pressure that we put on ourselves as creators to, to reach those deadlines and whatever it is, we don't allow for or kind of appreciate all of that stuff that is happening in between those moments of creating and how it impo- how important it is to go, okay, I'm not getting anywhere. Instead of like pushing and pushing and pushing, even with, you know, creating a plate, I'd be like if I was in there not in the right energy, I'd smash a plate, one would go up in flames. I'd just keep going because I'm like, no, i got to smash it out and i got to do something. And sometimes from that comes, you know, beautiful creation. Other times you just got to let it go and walk away and be like, okay, tomorrow's a new day. I've just got to come back and not have so much expectation on what it is, what my output is. 
And that's also one of the reasons why I decided that I would never completely depend on my work to pay my bills in this process of creating because I need time for my process. I need to allow, you know, whatever it is that happens in the dark room to happen rather than being like, okay, I've got like one hour and I've got to create this and I've got to do that because I, I just can't work. I have never been able to really work in that way. That's why I always found commissions, even like people commissioning me to, to take portraits of them because they see my work and they go, oh, could you do it of me? And I always found that even even having that expectation of you know a certain time frame and because I just worked in my way and there's a you know there's a lot of pros and cons to that and I think a part of me was like okay I've you know if I actually do want to kind of make money from what I do which I know that eventually you know that will that will happen for me but in that initial stages of kind of still being in that that journey of learning and because as you said before it's one of the most difficult um, photographic processes to learn and there's so much that goes wrong there's so many so much trial and error um, so much research that goes into it and sourcing materials and all of that that I I wasn't selling work for years you know because I was just in the making I was just making and making and making and that's why I've got you know hundreds hundreds of just glass plates in my studio and prints piles and piles of prints that haven't seen the light of day yet (laughs) but that's why this exhibition is happening and hopefully people will be able to see that work they will be able to see the work they will (laughs) not hopefully so what about the brookvale arts district bad Bad. Brilliant. <laughs> Bad is good. Um, Are you a co-founder of that as well? I am. Yeah. And that was born at La Creme about two and a half, if not maybe almost three years ago. Yeah. So we kind of, we were in the space for a little while. We've almost been there. I think we've almost been there for five years actually. And, you know, just having a conversation around how, we were the first, we were one of the first creative spaces on the other side of Brookvale when we were over there under a different name. Um, when I kind of walked into the space and I was hiring a, you know, at the time just a little desk space where I then ended up building a dark room into the back um, garage area. We, yeah, that was one of the first creative spaces um, in Brookvale. Mm. And, you know, a few years on, we were at, you know, found our new place in La Creme and realized how many other little creative spots and artist studios there were popping up all around Brookvale like kind of all around us we were we were part of a greater community that was just expanding and expanding and expanding and we realized that it's not about us competing against you know the local other co-working space it's about like how we're all here in this community together how can we actually help each other out and work together to make this even bigger and how how can we put out all of our energy into the same bucket and actually make something with all of these amazingly creative people around us 
And so Bad was born because we were like, we don't want to just have a few studios here and there. We want to create a district. We want to create Brookvale as an arts district. And we're mm. like, Brookvale Arts District, Bad, that's awesome. Let's go with that. So Bad was born and we we knew we were kind of onto something and spoke to a lot of people about the idea and, you know, it even turned out that quite a lot of people – um, Lara actually from the National Grid, she, you know, she'd been in, I think she'd been in Brookvale for almost nine years now, or maybe even more. She, what now? As yeah. I just say, she said she's had that studio for like 17 Six, 16, years. Yeah, sorry. 17 I years. I thought it was, and then I was like, no, that doesn't seem right. Yeah, you're right. It would have been that, that long ago. And she said back then she kind of saw that, she almost had that vision for, for Brookvale and in its capacity wow. to to bring in that kind of creative energy and, uh, she, you know, she wanted to start doing, you know, little maps and mapping it all out and we we weren't the only ones with that idea. Like everyone kind of were like, yeah, let, like let's do it. Let's somehow work together to get that happening and um, Lara is now a co-founder as well of that. Mm. Yeah, it's, it was really kind of collaborating and, and reaching out to the community who wanted to be part of of creating that. So that's been about, yeah, two and a half, almost three years ago that, that that started. And, you know, we're slowly, you know, building and growing, but, you know, there's always, it always comes to a halt when there's not a lot of funding to keep these things going mm. and everyone's working on their own projects, but... I know that, you know, it's always the, the wheels are turning in the back background and like we will eventually be able to really kind of create something a lot bigger than, you know, it's all happening kind of under the radar right now. Mm. We're hoping with a, a bit of seed funding to get this these ideas going and um, so that we basically doing what we're doing already, but, you know, with a lot more awareness and, and you know, bringing art specifically into the businesses and, th- you know, it's it's already happening around us. Like, you know, the local breweries, they've got, you know, amazing lineups for musicians every night mm. and, you know, lots of gallery spaces and little markets and pop-ups and things. So people are already, what we had envisioned is already actually happening and it's not about like us going, oh, we we started Brookvale Arts. Like we're, we're so happy to see everyone connecting and, it like completely taking over this area, like with a very specific focus on creativity, and yeah, that's kind of where where we started and the idea behind it. I don't know if you want any information more specific than that, but it was just more about understanding, like what, like I think it's a brilliant idea having connecting everybody from all from all walks of life. And it also ties into that question around, you know, you've got the bike mechanic as well. Well, yeah, that's the thing. It was about you know, it's so hard to draw. It's so hard to draw a line to say, well, this is arts district. We represent the arts district, but who's who are the types of people that are in the arts district? Yeah, well, that was the whole idea, and really the the pitch was that okay, we're not here going, we are artists and we want to be seen and we're, we're creating an arts district. It was yeah. like, yeah, it's like... Here's our flag. Yeah, yeah, we are artists, <laughs> we are here. It was like, we are all, we are all creative. We are yeah. all in this. Like, And let's just have a look at the f- statistics here of the power of art to bring in 
people from not just the other side of the bridge, mm. <laughs> the Harbour Bridge we're talking about, but, you know, internationally, like being a a district, an arts district where people come to mm. to see all sorts of things and and to incorporate the mechanics, the breweries, the 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 different studios, like anyone that wants to be involved and that's the thing, we're not exclusive to create, you know, the classic inverted commons creatives or artists. It's about everyone being able to celebrate that, whether it's like being a yeah, mechanic or whatever and and having a mute like even like, you know, incorporating visual art somehow in the facade or or it's like somehow incorporating and being like included in what it is that we are creating. Sorry, I think that last bit didn't really make any sense. No, that's fine. That's good. <laughs> I'm, I'm just thinking I'm it, 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 ties, it ties back into that passion thing though, right? Mm. Like that's the thread that connects everybody and it's more about. Yes, and that's right. It's really like it's really telling those people as well that what you are doing is art, mm. really. Yeah. Everything that you're creating, you know, even, for example, we're eating fuel brownies and I did a little photo shoot for them, just Jess, the owner, she's a good friend of mine and they were, they had this beautiful degustation meal that they offered through, you know, Taste of the Northern Beaches, which was a council-run event and, you know, they put on this incredible feast, this eight-course degustation and I got to, you know, be a little fly on the wall and photograph throughout the night and um, one of the head chefs who had prepared all this this incredible food at each meal at each you know where where they stopped and ex- like put out the next dish started to explain where the meal's from and what it is and like how how it's been prepared and the history of that and everything for me watching that was like this is art this experience is art mm. all of these things that involve something that's thought out, something that's created. I mean, obviously food is such a beautiful expression of love and passion mm. and that's that's exactly it. That's the the selling point, isn't it? Is like is the passion that they have so long as there's passion there and like yeah, as you said, if it's a guy fixing your bike or fixing your motor, you know, there's so the the motor industry around here as well. Yeah, exactly. There's there's art really in in everything that we do, so long as there's passion involved. And narrative. Yeah, there's a story. Yeah. Beautiful. So, well, you're moving out of your current dark room, right? I am. <laughs> you are. Yeah. And it's, amaz- it's an amazing space. <laughs> uh, let me just put on my robot hands here because I'm reading straight off my prompt. <laughs> okay, okay. You're moving okay. out of your current dark room. It's a brilliant space and I can see how you could lose yourself for hours and hours in there. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about moving out of such a beautiful space. Yeah. And where to next? <laughs> and how do you create recreate that magic? Yeah, bittersweet. The owner of our property is selling, so we've been, yeah, moved out of where we are now, which means I do lose my darkroom, which has been, you know, it's been a process in itself. It's taken me many years to actually get that place to the, get that space to the point that I wanted it. And now, you know, especially just before my exhibition, I've, I've now kind of, I've got a month in that space to basically create a lot of the work for my show. So way to put a rocket up. 
<laughs> up do you there. have to do any glass plates? <laughs> no, I, thank I've God. Done, yeah, no, <laughs> no glass plates. Just just printing. So it'll just be a month of getting in doing some darkroom printing, which is exciting. And yes, I will get lost in there for hours and hours and hours. But I think, as they say, when one door closes, another one opens. And I think mm. for me, the fact that I my practice is kind of, you know, I spent a lot of time in there when I was doing the wet plate process, which is, you know, very laborious, have to, you know, have to be in that space and have to shoot on site there because one thing with the wet plate process is that you have, I mean, you call it wet plate because the plate literally has to stay wet. As soon as it dries, it's no longer light sensitive. So you have about 10 minutes from when you take the photograph to when you actually have to develop it. So, you know, I'd set my camera up outside or up on the rooftop with sunlight and take the photograph and run it down to the darkroom and process it straight away. So I was... Damn, that's impractical. It really is. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's why back in the day, you know, they had all the, you know, the horse, and, the dark room in the back of the horse and cart. Cause I they didn't actually know that. had to, yeah, they had to take it all with them, process plates on the go, like back in wartime and before that. Yeah, that, so that makes sense because, yeah, okay. That was a lot of that time in that pr- process and having to really be in there and be confined to that space. And then I just needed a break. I needed to try. I just needed to get out of the dark room for a little while and into the light. And I had my 35 mil camera and I started shooting, really needed some color in my life. So I started shooting a lot of color film, which I was mm. loving. There's such beauty in the in the wet plate image, which is, you know, wouldn't even say black and white, you call it almost black and silver because mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's made from 99% diluted silver and, you know, nitric acid. <laughs> And a whole lot of other things, but uh, it has this incredible, incredible aesthetic that almost looks like they're made 160 years ago. Yeah, I really enjoyed that time in that process, but I knew that there was a lot. Um, it was holding me back from a lot of other things and other ideas that I had. So I just needed to let it go for a little while, and I it was almost two years after f- my last exhibition that I just wasn't really in the dark room much at all. I was out shooting out on site or going to people's studios and photographing them or finding other ways to to create work. And so I haven't really utilized that space in quite a while. And I think a part of me felt a lot of guilt when I was going into the studio and just sitting <laughs> outside on a on the little on or in the in the gallery space in the mm. meeting room just kind of doing my computer work or whatever it was. Because I was like, I just, I just don't want to get back in there right now. That break was, the break was good, and I think where I'm at now with my practice is that I have six years worth of work on, you know, seven different hard drives, or you know, hundreds of plates sitting in that dark room. Mm. So really, my time now is just going to be months and months of just like accumulating all of that stuff and and getting it out there. So like as much as I, you know, I a month in there to print the rest of the show is probably I probably can do it if I'm committed to to really spending that time to get it done in that as as we said and there's nothing like a deadline. And I think I will be able to get that bit done and then 
yeah, might have a little break for a while from the darkroom because we've got a new space mm. a few streets up and there's no room for the darkroom, unfortunately. But I have plans <laughs> to potentially, you know, with funds that I can make from the exhibition to create a, a portable darkroom potentially, you know, maybe even in a shipping container or something. <laughs> I was going to say, do you have a horse to drag it around? <laughs> <laughs> I'm working on the horse. <laughs> Yeah, so that's kind of down the track. But for now, I've got plenty plenty of things to do without my darkroom, as sad as it's going to be to leave it. We'll see where it takes me, you know. As as we said, like I, I always appreciate a challenge of like, okay, you take away the darkroom, cool. How, how can I make the work? How can I finish off that rest of the work without a darkroom? Or I can hire another one. I mean... Yeah, it's just going to be interesting to see then, you know, once I've created the work that I want in the darkroom, where the work is going to go after that. I'll definitely be in alternative processes and still want to hand print, you know, the work that I want actual, actually printed. And then obviously I've got all of the works that already exist, all those glass plates that I need to, you know, somehow frame up or, you know, present and, and archive properly. It just feels like another rebirth, right? Yeah. You know, that's yeah. the definition of my name. No. <laughs> no. I, yeah. Like rebirth of tea bags. <laughs> that's right. No, really? Yeah, Renata, it means re- rebirth. Wow. That's very apt. It is. I feel like it's a constant rebirth. Oh, that's true for everyone. <laughs> but, yeah, I think that in that in that loss there will be a lot of gain and I – and I'm just really happy that our creative community can still stay together and we're moving on to a another space which, you know, will bring new energies again and it's going to be a lot more uh, like a collaborative environment because it's like one level because before we had like two levels and a yeah. rooftop and people were kind of working a lot more separate, uh, which will be really powerful to to see where that leads and I'll have a little desk space where I can do all my editing and like you know accumulate all the stuff and do all my stuff for my website for my show and whatnot yeah we'll we'll see and then you know I'll if I need my dark room and I want my dark room again I'm, I'm sure I'll find a way to do it I've got no doubt yeah it, <clears throat> it's been um it's been ticking along in the back of my head but I was just thinking about how you were talking about having a love affair with your craft before. <clears throat> the um, I forget the author's name. Elizabeth Gilbert. Elizabeth Gilbert. And to not make your art your life and to create space so you can do your art and things like that. And I think the chef analogy is usually a pretty good one because you ask a chef to come home and cook and they, don't, they can't be fucked. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but... um. You ask an accountant to, to come home in the weekend and cook and they'll spend hours in the kitchen because that's where they want to be. It's just so different. Mm-hmm. I think back to my time of where I've had um, roles where it's been pretty dry, you know, it's, it's been paying the bills for whatever reason and then you create that space at the end of the day or at the start of the day or in the weekends or wherever you can create the space to do your art and you literally are your so hungry for that you're hungry for that space for that time and you throw everything in it and it does it feel that time feels really uh, valuable 
you really, really appreciate that time. So you don't fuck around. Typically, you just throw yourself in there. And you really appreciate that time. But you also don't ever get tired when we don't typically get too tired when you're doing something that you're passionate about. Yeah, and when there's no pressure when, as well. Yeah, so that that's the other thing, right? You've got to leave yourself enough space so you can actually give yourself time to, from a cold start, to sort of warm into your process. Mm. Um, that's true for me anyway. Like, Yeah, definitely. And I think that that's, that's right, that whole experience of, and probably one of the reasons why, you know, I could have gone down the road of doing wedding photography or, you know, taking photos of babies or, just, you know, working with my practice for a monetary income that I know that, you know, will be able to support that. But at the end of the day, if that wasn't really what I love to do, to do and what I was really passionate about, I wanted to be able to express myself in my practice and in my process like 100%. I didn't feel right, like, because if I'd go out and do that, I'd come home and I, you know, then wouldn't want to shoot. Like I... For some people it, it works and they're able to interchange. For me it was easier to actually work in something unrelated. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, because yeah. then I could actually, that as you said, like I would then go into my practice and want to be there rather yeah. than burning myself out, doing all these other jobs with my practice and then having to continue to do that and will work in that process mm for my own stuff. So, I mean, that was just a personal choice. Everyone's different, but I, I have a lot of other creative friends that find that kind of, that same thing, that burnout as well when taking photographs for, you know, magazines and like food photography and stuff. And then at the end of the day, they're just like, they end up just kind of going on that train and just continuing to, to do that. And then they find that it's been months before they actually can be bothered to pick up a camera for themselves. Yeah. And I think I, there was a part of me that was always a bit scared to to get into that. So yeah. I just decided not to. And and now it's like I can do commissions and and actually really enjoy it because I'm doing it in my way. I, like, you know, and people will say like, I want to I want a portrait, but you just, you have complete create, yeah. creative control. And that's really important as an artist to actually be like okay I'm going to create this and this is kind of if it's a wet plate it might have you know marks on it that like you have no idea what the outcome is and, and you've got to be okay with that and that's um that's such a beautiful thing when you actually have a little bit more power and control over um how it is your work especially when you're working on commission a lot of artists will being able to as a as a creative as an artist, being able to establish your own boundaries is really really important. Oh yeah, that's a big one. I've found that in the last couple of years, been really clear with the sorts of people that I want to work with, and I found that you know I took some time to really think about the types of because I got really really jaded with design, and I was just like, mm, can imagine. I don't want to do this anymore. Like, like. And so I wanted to throw it away. And then I was like, well, what do I do instead? And then it was like, well, okay, there's actually still parts of design that I really love doing. But then what are the parts that I don't like doing? And a lot of it came down with, with the type of 
people and types of situations I got myself into just agreeing to work and, you know, not being, I suppose, brave enough or confident enough to say, actually, my time's worth this. I want to, I want to help you, but I, yeah, sure, we can do mates rates or whatever. But then really, really quickly you get into, fuck, I'm working my balls off for this <laughs> and this is nowhere near enough money to justify the amount of effort I'm putting in. You really quickly move from excitement to resentment and mm, like that. That's a huge one, actually. So I moved, I, I got really clear with some boundaries that I wanted to set for myself and I found as soon as I started setting boundaries for myself, it felt like I was actually reducing the types of work that I got, but in fact it opened opportunities because I knew exactly who to look for, who to speak for, to. And I say exactly, let's just say a clearer idea. <laughs> Good one. <laughs> but like it really opened up, it opens up opportunities. And um, I think it's really cool that you can then do Renata and be clear with your commission work and say, okay, we're going to work together, but this, this, this is what I actually need. If you want to get the best out of me, the best out of this relationship, then th this is sort of it. Oh, and yeah. If but that takes, that takes time and practice as well. I mean, boundaries is a huge one for artists, a huge, huge one. And that's like people take a lot longer to create those boundaries than others, but it's, a, it's all part of the journey. But for me, I think someone would say, oh, can you photograph my, you know, my band? And yeah, cool. Like, and I'll get really excited and I'll go and like go and buy a whole bunch of film and then, you know, charge close to nothing for it, pretty much covering my costs. And then I will be having such a good time that I'll, you know, I'll spend like four or five hours there and I'll shoot like six rolls of film. And then, then you got to get to what you got to send it off and process it or process it. Uh, process all my black and white stuff but I send off my color stuff and then by that time for me I just I didn't have those boundaries also because I I wasn't really aware of the costs involved like because I I was just like I want to do it so I'm going to do it and I'm just you know oh that'll be enough and just kind of off the cusp because I wasn't I didn't go to business school like I went to art school which this is you know, yeah <laughs> Sometimes I wish like we just had a little bit more kind of professional practice um, subjects in there just to talk about the financial side of things and being a bit more of a, a, a better businesswoman in, in my artistic practice. But at the same time, for like I'm learning that now. So, and I'm creating those boundaries now. Mm. But yeah, I think definitely those setting those boundaries and realizing okay if I spend four or five hours like I'm taking all these photographs it's gonna you know it's gonna cost me this much it's gonna take up this amount of time then the post editing whatever is gonna take that amount of time really you need to be compensated for that otherwise you can't buy food for that week or whatever yeah. you actually got to be smarter and actually being able to support yourself and yeah. And, you know, I've had to learn that lesson many times, <laughs> still, still learning. There's also, there was a bit of shame in, in asking. And I think that also comes with really seeing your value as an artist and actually yeah. appreciating what you do and, and, and going, oh, I actually do have a skill to offer someone, you know, like there was a, 
there was a podcast I was listening to the other day that talks about, you know, a butcher, you know, you go into a butcher and you, you order six sausages and, and he says like, that's however much money for those six sausages and that's the cost of it. And you walk out like there's no, oh yeah, but you know, there's no bartering with, with that. And he's very certain in he what he wants. He also has a massive knife. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> You've you've got a camera. Got a, <laughs> That's true. I've got a but sharpie. it's kind of that same thing as like I've got to be able to stand in front of someone and say this is this is my value. Like this is this is what I'm worth. This is what that image is worth. And if someone can't afford it at that time, cool. Like no worries. Like or if they want it, they will buy it. And actually trusting yeah. in in that. But there's also you know we do that whole thing of like oh, you know, like, that's fine. I'll just do it for, like, 75% off. And then you're like, oh, my God, why did I do that? And then – but that's that's all part of the setting boundaries and knowing your value as an artist and actually being okay with asking for remuneration. Yeah, actually asking for that in return. Because, yeah, we do things for free for a, a certain amount of time until we realise it's not sustainable. Yeah. And yeah, being at that point as an artist of going, why why shouldn't I be paid for what I'm doing? I feel like it's a, um, as as an artist as a creative, we have to like a stupid pigeon fly into that window many 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 times uh-huh. before we learn, yeah, we <laughs> and we that. get sort of jaded and go, you know what? I don't have fucking time for this. This is. This is how much it's worth, and if you're not willing to pay that for that, then that's okay. Yeah, that's okay. Accepting that, and it's just like a really good filter. But young, young as was like, I'll do anything to work, to do your work, and then resenting it really quickly. I think once you sort of agree on a fee for your service, and everybody's happy, everybody's satisfied that they're getting a deal are happy right let's leave it at that you can then go about your work and not feel the weight of well this is i'll speak for myself but you do you go about the work without the weight of i'm i I need to get this out i need to get this out because i've charged them not enough but then there's also they're paying me good money so now i've got space and time to really go about my work and it's a it's a seldom amount of it's only a very small amount of times that you're backed into a corner for one reason or another and produce good work, like you're doing shit that comes off the top of your head and that you're just really relying on chance at that point. But if you give yourself your space to go through your process and not force things, and you allow things to happen naturally and come up, that's when the good stuff happens. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's a really good point and when you reach that moment where you know your value, you understand the what you're offering and you're not at that point where you're desperate <laughs> to for that person to say yes or, you know, you bend over backwards to, to you know, lower the cost so that it fits their budget and mm. realise at that point when you're doing that, you're actually kind of taking something away from yourself by doing that. It's not worth it. I've had many experiences where I realise, but you, you know, you make that mistake, as you said, you fly into that door, you know, into that window like multiple times before you go, okay, I'm not doing that anymore. <laughs> <Yeah>. It really hurts. <laughs> it's not worth it. I'm too tired. Yeah. I'm not getting up 
again, after falling, it's just um, onwards and upwards and this is this is it. This is who I am. This is what I'm offering and if you appreciate it and resonate and it resonates with you, awesome. If not, that's cool. And yeah. really being okay with that. I think that's a maturity thing as well, hey? Yeah, definitely. Um, being okay with this this is not going to work or this isn't right for us. Well, yeah, and I'm like I've been a massive people pleaser as well and that's yeah. something that you have to let go of, of like you just want everyone to, if you want my work and it's not, you can't afford it, then I'm like, oh, well, that's okay. Like I'll just give it to you like, you know, multiple times of just like giving my artwork out for free because, yes, I want it, but then there's also in doing that, taking something away from myself I'm like devaluing what it is that I'm actually worth that's kind of people as well don't really realize when you're doing that I mean it's not their fault like I'm offering and of course they're taking if that's what I'm offering them but um in that transaction they there's like oh cool like that's like that's okay that that they're giving it to me for me to me for free it's it's something that I I have to work on anyway. I had a point with that, but I think I'm I'm fading. Okay. <laughs> how do you think how do you think you've grown over the last you know, five or ten years as a as a creative, as an artist? Like what's the biggest change? Oh wow. Um my relationship with myself and my practice actually is the biggest one. Man, that's a huge one. Um, when you get to that point of accepting whatever you're creating, even if it is terrible, like actually just accepting that bad art for the moment that it is and just birth it anyway, like actually just let it go into the world. But if you do what I've done for the last six years with this body of work, hold it all in because it's not ready yet it's not it's not good enough yet it's like I've still got I've still got to perfect it I still got to perfect it you'll end up years and years and years years on and you'll be that person that they'll you know (laughs) they'll find the negatives in the bottom of a basement somewhere and you and they've never seen the light of day and that's actually such a shame and something that I'm very passionate about, not only in my own creative practice, but with the work I do running a non-for-profit creative space and, you know, the mentoring that I do through the residency program where we are like mentoring new emerging artists to actually take themselves seriously as artists, to push them into creating a body of work, to actually have their first solo exhibition, to put their work into the world. And I'm very good at doing it for other people, but it's very hard when you actually have to do it for yourself. And so like being your biggest cheerleader and actually like just accepting that if you've got a creative idea that comes in and you birth it out and you just get it out there, like it, you just, you just got to let it go it's like you know a musician you got a song idea you put it out you know might not be as good as the the one that you did before but you just got to writing books everything you know it applies to anything really if you just got to get it out there because holding it in um and not sharing it is is such a shame and it's also I guess I see it and that's another kind of Elizabeth Elizabeth Gilbert reference is that idea that 
in in the creative world, like when a creative idea comes in, it's like it's hovering in the universe above us all and it goes, oh, here's like an open channel, someone who's yes. ready to receive this idea. Boom, okay, it's yours now. And I can, oh, yeah, I don't know, but I don't know if it's good and we judge it and we go, oh, yeah, but like, oh, what if it's not very, you know, similar to what I've been doing or maybe it's too similar or like, and we nitpick at it and blah, blah, blah and judge it and and then it'll just go because it, it'll it be like, okay, you don't appreciate this idea. Okay, we're going on to the next person. But if you actually do birth it and you don't actually give it back out into the world, that energy is just sitting in piles of plates in your dark room or whatever it is, mm. piles of canvases not being seen to this world that deserve to be seen. I mean, whether it is like, yeah, I mean, now social media and whether it's on your Instagram or your website or or just like showing one family member or just like even giving it away to someone so it's not sitting dormant, you know, like with without being seen to anyone. Like That's I think, a cool idea that. Yeah, I think that is like one of the biggest lessons that I had to learn as a creative and like I think that's, you know, coming back to that question around my growth in the last 10 years is actually being at a place now where I am accepting my creativity as such a gift. I've been seeing it in a very different way, sometimes almost like it's a burden and sometimes it can feel like that, but that's also just got to do with the relationship that we have with ourselves and our creativity and how we are sometimes our the hardest critics and we tear ourselves apart and we can see good in what other people are creating and we compare ourselves to other people but then at the end of the day we've actually got to be our own biggest cheerleaders and sometimes I thought oh but that's like being full of yourself or being up yourself like if you're a a butcher let's go back to that you want to be like I'm a damn good butcher I can like chop you know with my big knife you know <laughs> I've got my big boy I, pants you know, on with my big knife <laughs> but you know I am a good I'm I'm a good I'm a talented artist like for me to actually even say that or even to call myself an artist yeah in that it's a big time way. like it's like how long does it take for us to actually accept that for me, I still go, oh, like, you know, when you're filling out your forms, like, occupation. I'm like, artist? Okay. <laughs> Do I write that? Like, it even feels like there's moments where that still feels yeah. difficult. Because, like, at what point are we, you know, defined an artist? Because, I, you know, well, I'm not really an artist because I haven't made a lot of money and supported myself fully with my work. Yeah, but. <laughs> the the, the uh, the word reps, you know, when you go to the gym and you do some reps. Oh yeah, you know, reps. Yeah, yeah, lots of reps. Got to get, got to get the reps in. in. Yeah, got to get your reps in. <laughs> yeah. But like I was just thinking about with <clears throat> with creativity and art, it's like the the ideas come through you, and if you hold on to them, you judge them and you squash them, or like you said, they just end up as a plate that don't that doesn't see the world or doesn't see anyone. You're not doing your reps, right? Mm-mm. And so artists, creatives, mechanics, the, the the bike mechanic doesn't get good at fixing bikes if he doesn't fuck up a few bikes, right? <laughs> you know, it's about, I think it's about just continuing to go on through the process and being okay that, because I think we, we put a lot of 
pressure on ourselves to do good art or whatever in our screwed up heads is good art or perfect art and all those little imperfections, they need to see the light of day. Yeah, but who are we to judge that Yeah, even, you know? And what what I consider is not good art, you would say, oh, I love that. But, you know, it's it's all completely... Yeah, it's the same as this podcast, right? Like yeah. things that... Things that resonate with people, like you cannot predict accurately what's going to resonate with anyone. Mm -hmm. You can't. That's art, isn't it? Yeah. I reckon that's pretty good. Awesome. Renata, <laughs> thank you for thank you for being on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. It's been really fun. Yeah. I loved it. And um, I'm really excited about being You're part nice. of this community. I feel like it's been a well it's been a whirlwind week for me. <laughs> Same for me. Yeah. Maybe it's a Virgo in us. Something's going on in the universe. Mercury and retrograde. <laughs> or something like that. If I hear that one more time. Has that been this week? <laughs> yeah, I think it's been the whole bloody month or maybe even the last six months. I have no idea. There's something going on, but yeah. It's times are changing, things are moving. It's all up and down and up and down. But, you know, I think at the end of the day. We're all on this journey together and I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that we met and that we can have this conversation now and I feel like, yeah, definitely something's going to come from that. Thank you for the coffee. Thank you for the brownies. <laughs> Thank you for bringing so all your photos and, uh, yeah, can we share any photos on the – Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. I'd love to. Yeah, awesome. I'll definitely um, add in some images and just, I guess, a little plug to the exhibition – way to keep me accountable like telling a whole podcast that i've got this show happening and yeah <laughs> you'll be seeing more of me <laughs> all four of our listeners um <laughs> oh really come on <laughs> yeah there's my Don't mom like that there's my mom well i'll get my mom to what to listen to that's so. five okay uh, excellent so it's we're moving on exponential up. growth <laughs> so uh details for the exhibition yeah, so it's going to be on September 16th, which actually is your birthday, mm. <laughs> day after mine. What day does that fall on? That's actually a Friday. Perfect. Yeah. So um, it's going to be in Brookvale. It was going to be in my gallery space, but that's no longer going to be existing at that point. So it's going to be in a different location. Do we have a location yet? Not yet. No, okay. Good. <laughs> it will be, yeah, it'll be somewhere in Brookvale. So the universe will... Materialize yeah, a space. Absolutely. It's already on my manifestation list. Beautiful. Renata, thank you very much. <laughs> thank you. Everybody else, thank you for listening. Thanks Bye. for listening. Bye. Bye.